Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 844 with Chef Andy Little. I'd give you a recipe and we'll both cook it. And mine's going to taste different than yours. And it's not love. <laughs> That's not it. What's your special recipe? Love. No, special recipe is your entire life's experiences. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by DiagioBarAcademy.com, and I cannot be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better They are consistently raising the bar on industry standards, and no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiageoBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events, and if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings, so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.DiageoBarAcademy.com. That is D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com get over there today's episode is brought to you by seven shifts seven shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs and i have to say i haven't come across a restaurateur using seven shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals seven shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules timesheets communications tasks tips and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends with supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. What's going on? Unstoppable. Today we're talking to Chef Andy Little and special thanks to past guest Nick Bishop Jr. from Hattie Bees for calling Andy out to be a future guest on the show. And uh, if you guys are not familiar with Andy Little, he uh, came to Nashville by way of Central Pennsylvania in 2013 after realizing that orchestral music was not 
his career path. After getting a job in a restaurant server, he discovered the kitchen and that's where he fell in love. He decided to go to the CIA after graduating the CIA. He worked in restaurants like Patrick O'Connell's, uh, the Inn at little Washington. He also did some time over at Evermay on the Delaware, which eventually led him back to his hometown where he spearheaded the restaurant, the shepherd mansion, He found his way to Nashville in 2013, and only a few years later, he got nods from James Beard for Best Chef Southeast semifinalist 2017-2018, and to this day, he's crushing it, leading Nashville's food scene. With no further ado, here he is, Chef Andy Little. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef of Josephine on 12th. Andy Little. Andy, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Always. Yes, I cannot wait to get into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? I think we always go with uh, a little bit better every day. A little bit better every day. Why Why is that sing near and dear to your heart? Uh, I mean, I think that it, if you're in a restaurant or even anything that you're trying to accomplish in life, if you can, everything's going to be incremental. Yeah. You're not going to go from zero to a hundred. Um, so if you can parse it out and make sure that every day you're trying to find one thing, you're always going to take, you know, there's three steps forward and sometimes one or two steps back. But if you're always focusing on trying to find one thing that you can do a little bit better than you did the day before, then you turn around a week, a month, a year later, and it just happens. Yeah. And listening to you talk, I can't help but think of a book that we recently read in the network, uh, the, the atomic habits, and in that, they talk about 1% better every day. Just focus. Don't focus on the, the so much on how well you execute the thing, but just focus on doing it better than you did the day before. And if you do that over time, you will become amazing. And uh, that, it, like you said, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Sure, right. right. Awesome stuff. Um, so where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you didn't know, like right after high school or college, that you were going to be in the restaurant industry. You were on a different path, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I went to uh, undergrad school for, I uh, was a classical musician, played the tuba, um, did that for a while, and just, uh, I realized that I didn't love the music so much as I just loved the idea of achievement, and sitting in that realm gave me a, a perfect opportunity to try and achieve something, um, but I was in school with a lot of very gifted musicians, um, some of them who sat at lower chairs than I did, but they loved doing what they were doing. And I just loved achieving something. So I knew that that probably wasn't um, how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. If I did, I guess I would have been okay with it. But I also knew that there was a bit of sacrifice involved that all of them who are now very successful musicians went through. And I wasn't willing to go through that. And I think that's how I knew that wasn't uh, the correct path for me. Um, I didn't want to move to New York or Chicago or San Francisco and teach lessons and, um, you know, make that sacrifice until I made it, you know, major symphony orchestras have one tuba player. So your, your chance of success is very yeah. slim. Yeah. Um, and so from there, um, I went to work for an actuarial consulting firm doing math and stuff that's. What kind of consulting firm? Actuarial consulting firm. What is that? So the the group that I worked for um, managed the retirement funds for states. Um, And part of what I did was in the late 90s when the internet was still sort of new-ish to everyone, uh, I worked on trying to help 
put those things online. So if you worked for a state X and you wanted to figure out uh, when you could retire and how much you money you needed to save, you could put all your assumptions into this little calculator online and yeah. it would spit out information. So how, I'm curious, how old were you when you made this decision that the path you were on wasn't really resonating with you? Um, and then when you had to make that decision to get off this path that you probably spent a lot of money to get to this point, right? A lot of time. Uh, what was there a lot of anxiety around getting off this path? Uh, was it easy for you to make the decision to, to take, get like to the emotional side of that? No, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there was, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't really remember that much. I know that I wasn't happy doing, I knew that what I was doing at the time being in music wasn't my lifelong thing. Got it. Um, and then I took the job working for the consulting firm. Just, I needed a job. Yeah. So that worked out pretty nicely and uh when that didn't you know when i knew that also that was kind of i just couldn't sit in a cubicle all day and you know stare at a computer it just wasn't i I wasn't built for that Mm -hmm. both of my parents are uh were they're retired now public school teachers so i decided that i would go back to school and try and get my teaching certification and i was going to teach like high school history okay and uh maybe coach the golf team uh and in order to pay for that i started working in restaurants got it and the so I, I don't know that there was any stress or anxiety along the way. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was I had been focused since I was 15 on uh, being a, a classical musician. And so then I had to change gears. But when you're in your early 20s, changing gears isn't like changing gears in your late yeah, 40s. It's much you easier. Know? I mean, it's for just, sure. It's, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and then getting into restaurants to pay for school was not a shock to the system either. I was already geared as a professional musician. So working on holidays, working nights that I didn't know what a nine to five job was. Mm -hmm. Um, so the school thing lasted a semester, not even, I mean, I, I just wasn't, I was kind of done with school also at that point. And I got in and I approached all of the professors and just said, listen, like I was sitting beside 18 year old kids who were, puking into trash cans because they were hung over and i was like i'm just here to get a degree real quick because i want to move on with my life and so if it's cool i'm just going to read the book and if i can take the final i'd like to do that and just not come to class because i've got a job yeah and that didn't go over really well and i just thought well this probably isn't the place for me either um so i actually started waiting tables i didn't start in the kitchen um and i was fascinated by the kitchen though um just the you know, i grew up doing all kinds of you know, baseball and soccer and so team athletics. Um, and I found that after, you know, going through training to be a professional musician, um, I had missed that about life. And I found that sort of team environment in the kitchen more than the food. Um, again, again, it was another opportunity to, uh, prove myself and to achieve something. So I, I pretty quickly became a poor waiter so that they would move me into the kitchen. Okay. Um, uh, you, but you ultimately ended up going to the CIA, correct? Right. Yeah. Uh, so how long did it take you to, when, when you were in the kitchen, um, how much time elapsed from you know transitioning from server to kitchen to CIA? A couple years. I mean, the, the chef, who was young, I mean, he was, uh, he was very young at the time. The chef, I was working at a country club, and he approached me and said, listen, if you want to... Um, if you want to go any further outside of being a line cook, you really probably need to go and get a degree. Okay. So I just went online and found 
I Googled what's the best culinary school. I mean, I didn't know. Do you believe that advice today is no, true? not at all. Okay. Well, uh, what would we, be, be we the advice? We can probably touch on that later, I guess, <laughs> but uh, no. If uh, you were in his shoes, giving yourself advice, what would you tell yourself to do? Now or then? N- knowing what you know now, going back then, what advice would you uh, give yourself? Then I probably still would have gone with that. Now, over 20 years later, it's a different ballgame. Why? Uh, there are just more, I mean... I mean, we're sitting here in Nashville. Think about what the Nashville food scene was like 20 years ago. There was no Catbird Seat. There was no Bastion. There was no Josephine. There, you know, chefs were still basically, for the most part, either located in a major city or in Napa. Mm-hmm. And I was in the middle of central Pennsylvania where it just, you know, you couldn't go and knock on someone's door and say, I'm going to come in and work for free. I just want to learn. Yeah. You could, yeah. but I'm not sure how much you would learn. So the learning curve and the ability for people in pretty much, you know, all of the major and mid-major, if that's a term, cities, um, for them to go in and find a very reputable chef, that's there now. Yeah. And so spending the amount of money that you spend on CIA or any culinary school, for that matter, it's an investment for You're, sure. I think then and even today, what still has a little bit of weight with culinary school is the network is what you're paying for. You're paying for open doors. Uh, if, if you can get in and, and, and bust your ass, I mean, I guess maybe <laughs> you, you also can create a hell of a network working uh, in the Michael Mina group or working for the Thomas Keller group. Or, you know, if you get into a great restaurant and you're with a great class of cooks, they're all going to go on and achieve things. I mean, look at, you know, right now the hot thing is, uh, you know, did you work at Noma ever? Well, all the people that worked at Noma have their own network that they didn't have to pay sixty grand to exactly to acquire. And I think the other thing too is it really depends what within the restaurant business and within food, what career path are you on? Are you going to be a corporate chef? Or are you going to work in a hotel? Or are you going to work in the strictly independent uh, Michelin style restaurants? Or even just you know an, an independent. 110 seat restaurant like Josephine. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking to go into the corporate world, if you're looking to go into hotels, you're looking to go and work for Unilever, or um, you know, you want to be a corporate chef for Darden, and all of those are really, really great things to do. Maybe that's more of a direction that you want to go in. Yeah. But if you want to go and you want to own or operate or be the chef at a restaurant that's going to be on the world's 50 best, then I would point you in that direction. Exactly. But. We can probably revisit that as well. I mean, I'm not sure what the value is in that anymore. You mm. know, um, wait, the, the value in what exactly? The yeah. value in being a world's 50 best restaurant. Okay. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm happy you you said it. Why? Why do you think that? I mean, we can. I, I'm da- I'm fine with going into rabbit holes and coming back yeah. to the timeline, man. I, I, I feel like stuff. we've gone from the very beginnings to let's just dig into stuff that you're really kind of. <laughs> well, I'm good. Like, I mean, it's cool. I mean, I, I can make notes actually. If you want, I'm happy to make notes. We'll absolutely come back to that. I just want to keep you on track. Why? <laughs> I could use it. Uh, so back to uh, you said at this time back in the yeah. early 2000s, early 2000s, late 90s, yep. it didn't make sense. Uh, why? So what? What? How did it serve you? Because it was right then. How did it serve you? I mean, I I, I will say, and you know, this isn't any new news. Um, I learned more in the professional kitchens than I worked in than I did at school. And because of I was older than everyone else in my class, most people in my class, um, and I worked while I was in school. So having um, having CIA on my resume, um, 
I don't know if, if it helped or not. I definitely, you know, here's the thing. I read Michael Ruhlman's book, Making of a Chef, um, prior to going there. And I had heard all of the uh, war stories of how difficult uh, the school was. And I kind of, I wanted it to be that way. And it wasn't, you know, I was expecting, I was expecting the military of cooking. Do you think I, it changed I, over I didn't time? get it. Yeah. And I think it's still changing. I think it's, it's evolving. What was the reason for the change? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not on the inside. <laughs> I just know that, you know, from a product standpoint, from a guest perspective, which I was the one paying the money to, to go through their experience. Um, it wasn't what I wanted. Did the majority of people, and I don't know what other individual people want to get out of that experience. I wanted to get, I wanted to get battle hardened and I didn't. Do you get that in, in the restaurant? Yeah. Yeah. There's no choice. So you jump from CIA to, um, the, was it straight to the, the inn or? Yeah, I went there. I went to the, you know, Washington as an intern. Okay. Uh, from CIA. So that was another thing that was, uh, I actually applied to work at the Inlet of Washington before I went to CIA. Okay. And they wrote back and said, you know, nicely, but you really probably need to get some type of degree in order to be qualified to work here. So uh, that was another driver. I mean, uh, it was close. That was maybe an hour and a half away or two hours away from where I was living. Um, I really admired what they were doing. I'm still somewhat in love with the idea of the idyllic uh, French country inn that has, you know, a remarkable restaurant and also rooms. And um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I he, have not. he basically owns the town. It's a, a small town and all of the buildings, everything is just so. Um, and part of my focus was going and learning the food part of it. But honestly, and this I'm sure will come up over and over and over again. The cooking is the easy part. I wanted to learn all of the other stuff. Dude, <laughs> exactly, which is why this podcast exists. Like, yeah. you're opening a restaurant. I hope you can cook, but can you do all the other stuff? And right. in my opinion, the other stuff isn't nearly discussed enough in our industry, yeah. which is why I think there's such a, fail, a high failure rate because people think that it's just cooking, right. and it's so much more. So let's get into some of the biggest lessons that you learned from Chef Patrick o- O'Connell. There were a, a lot of things. I think I probably learned more. I learned the discipline of working in what's now a Michelin three-star restaurant. Um, but I also learned a lot about uh, just general, you know, I was at a point there, I was very uh, green. No, well, not green. I was just new to their restaurant. So I was pretty low on the totem pole. So I didn't have a lot of interaction with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I dealt a lot with the sous chefs, with the other um, chef de parties. Um and I think there, uh, one of the things I learned is that um, behind the curtain, uh, restaurants are restaurants. You know, uh, I am pretty famous for saying this. I think that you can learn more by getting a cup of coffee and staring at the cook at a Waffle House than you can working in a Michelin three-star restaurant. Why is that? Because there's a lot to learn there. And they're, that one cook is doing so many different things and doing them so well. Um, when you go and work in these, you know, these places that have become temples now, um, there are 50 or 60 or a hundred cooks and you could end up doing one thing all day and you become really proficient at that one thing. 
Masterchef's done about 47 things. He's only been here for 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, so you've got to be able to do that. And I think if people's eyes are open and you go and you watch, it's a little bit like the, uh, the line from Goodwill Hunting where they're in the bar and the, the Matt Damon character says to the guy, you know, who has spent all this money going to Harvard, well, you could have done that for $3 in late fees at the local library. Yeah. That's sitting at Waffle House with a cup of coffee and watching a really gifted line cook do their job as opposed to all of the other things. I mean, you can go into these temples and I'm not saying, I mean, they're great, but there's another way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to have that conversation, but we're shelving. I think we're going to come back to why you feel this way. And I think that's going to be at the very end of our conversation. But uh, what did you learn at, the inn at little Washington, like was, did they, did they, did they give you any standards? Did they give you any? Yeah. I, I mean, it, there definitely are standards to the way they do things. I think one thing I learned is don't be afraid to have your own standard and what you want to do should be the way. I mean, they, they do things very uniquely. Every line cook there wears Dalmatian print pants, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a different environment. Uh, it's a very high stress environment. Um, so, you know, one of the things I learned was make sure that you're doing it, you know, be unique, yes. do your own thing. I was literally typing the word unique but, out when you said that. Yeah. Have a standard and then hold people to it. And, you know, that's another rabbit hole we can go down also with the, the issues that we're uh, having industry wide as far as, uh, hiring and staffing goes. Um, I've just found that, you know. It's easy to get away from because you think, I just need people. You know, I just need bodies. But if those bodies aren't able to adhere to the standard that you need to have, then is it better to just not have them or to lower your standards? And that's something that people need to, to really think about. Uh, again, that's, you know, and that's not a cooking thing. That's a how do you want to separate yourself as a, a restaurateur or a chef or a restaurant? And the way to do that is with your individual standards. And I'm not talking about cleanliness. I mean, that should be a given, uh, you know, it's, is, you know, is the, is the button on your collar always buttoned? Is your apron always clean? Is, you know, are there only three towels in your, your pan or are there towels everywhere? I mean, how, how are you going to go through your day? Yeah. And it's funny you're saying this cause I literally was having a conversation this morning with somebody in the network and they were showing me a picture of these burgers, the different type of burgers that somebody was promoting at their new restaurant. And you could clearly tell they were like a smash burger type. Mm-hmm. And he's like, these burgers don't look pretty. And I was like, it doesn't really matter if, unless you're, are you, is your brand message try pretty or is your brand message smash burgers? You know, like, and it, it all depends. I think what's more important is consistency. And are you, are you what you say you are, you know? And as long as it, if what you're going for, maybe something you had a burger from when you were a kid and that burger is very nostalgic to you and you want to recreate that, whatever it is you're trying to do, as long as it's consistent, as long as that's what you want to be, success is relative. Success is, you know, relative to the beholder, like whatever I want, whatever I'm trying to achieve. Do you agree or disagree with what I'm saying? Mm, probably yeah. a little bit of both. What do you disagree I mean, with? I think that that's probably the art coming into it um, is the, we talk a lot about the, uh, the lens that you view things through mm-hmm. and your lens is your 
individual way of, uh, you say smash burger to me and I can make you one. You can make one too, I'm sure. And they're going to be totally different. Mm-hmm. That's why recipes are kind of, you know, I'd give you a recipe and we'll both cook it and mine's going to taste different than yours. Yeah. And it's not love. <laughs> That's not it. What's your special recipe? Love. No special recipe is your entire life's experiences. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I guess I agree with you a little bit on the, you know, yes, it's all your individual experience. It's all your individual perspective. It's, you know, how do you view what a smash burger should be? I think the thing, the success part of it, I guess that's all, it is relative, but it's all how we're defining success. Because if my idea of a smash burger doesn't sell, then is that successful? Still my idea of a smash burger and I've, I've executed that idea, but how ultimately successful was it? Because we're talking about on one hand, you know, an artistic endeavor on the other hand, got to put people in the seats Mm -hmm. or you got to put, you know, mouths into wrappers. Yeah. However you want to look at it. So I think that there's that way to view and it all comes down to how do you want to, how do you want to view that success? If success is, um, achievement strictly on the critical aspect, then you've been successful. It's, you know, what, at the end of the day, what are you trying to achieve? Okay. I mean, I, I can get on board with that for sure. Uh, any other lessons, anything we should hover over during your time at, uh, the little in, or sorry, the inn at little Washington before moving on. No, I mean, I, I think that, uh, it, it was a, it was a good experience. Um, and I certainly did learn to, you know, the being detail oriented and being detail oriented within your own unique environment, uh, is something that is, is very important or else you just end up stamping out generic stuff. Awesome. Um, so zoom up to 30,000 feet. Uh, I know that was in 2013 that you made your way to Nashville, but, but what happened between then and your time at the, uh, in the in at Little Washington. So I worked at two. Uh, I guess the best way to describe them would be bed and breakfast, one outside of Philadelphia uh, and one in my hometown. Um, and both had restaurants. And I think the idea there was to create uh, that country and experience. Yeah. It seems like there's a theme up to this point that you maybe wanted to recreate something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, there was a reason why uh, even leading to uh, working at the end of Little Washington, that was a, a style of, and it wasn't didn't have so much to do with dining. It had to do with the hospitality in general um, that I really latched onto. Uh, both places that I worked at had uh, gardens um, that we could bring people through prior to the dining experience. They were both smaller, more on the forty-five to sixty seat. Um, size uh they were decidedly special occasion uh places and i liked the idea of being able to sort of like disney world create an experience that from the minute the people walked on the property they were they were in our hands until they left you control the entire experience yeah i mean i guess i was trying to stay a little bit away from the word control um because it wasn't like you know we had marionettes in their uh, their rooms, but there was a you were coming for an experience. Yeah, you're and, transporting them, and uh, 
taking them away yeah. from uh, normal life yeah. for a little bit and taking them into a food centric um, hospitality area. Um, and so that was, you know, and I really loved every minute of that. One of the struggles that we had was just like where, uh, you know, the inner little Washington is 67 miles from DC. Both of those places were removed from metropolitan areas. So it was a, we were busy on the weekends and the weekdays were just not, and they were not entirely sustainable, um, situations. So then, um, the inn that I was at in my hometown closed and my wife and I, who, uh, we work together. She runs the front and is a sommelier. Um, we were looking all over, we were actually looking all over the world. We weren't opposed to moving to Europe. Um, Northern California, uh, was definitely on the list. And, uh, this opportunity came up in Nashville. I had never been to Nashville. Uh, her family is all from East Tennessee. So when we would go visit them in Knoxville, it was always, you know, we had driven eight hours to visit them. Should we drive another three hours to check out Nashville? And I just, we never really wanted to do that. So the opportunity came up to come down here and check it out. And we did mainly because, uh, I just wanted to see the city at that point in time in 2013, um, Nashville was starting to get some nationwide recognition for the food that was happening here. Catbird seat had recently opened, uh, Roth and daughters had recently opened and the, national media was paying attention Mm -hmm. and that was something that i at that point in time was very interested in was going to a place where um people were traveling to have the food of that area i mean this was even a little bit pre yeah i think it was i think you know all of these things had he be sort of happened around that time as well um so nashville was having a bit of a moment i guess uh you could say um lachlan same thing uh and uh, we came, we were here for five days, and uh, you know the restaurant that we're sitting in now was concrete uh, block and two-by-fours. And we decided that Nashville would be a good place for us. So was there somebody here that was calling you here to, to yeah, were, were there was being a, recruited? There was a, a restaurant group uh, that brought me here that uh, owned Burger Up down the street. Um, so that's kind of how we got here and and my wife wasn't i was hired first and then she was brought on later um and yeah we got here and it nashville has been and continues to be uh certainly going through some growing pains and evolutionary process but nashville is a great place for food um great place to visit and has been very good to us i mean i my whole life i never owned a home i mean we were always kind of in that workplace a couple of years and then figure out, well, maybe we just want to live somewhere else. And we own a home here now. Um, so it's definitely a place that we, uh, we love and, and has been very good to us. But you bring up a really important thing that I think it's important for people to understand. And I agree with what, when we were, we kind of got into this earlier, but you don't need to go to New York city, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami, Boston, or any of these big cities to get, to do the food you want to do. And actually there, there's more opportunity in, and I was, we were having this conversation earlier this week, like what I like to call fringe markets, markets that are on the edge or momentum markets, markets that are coming up and there's 
just a lot of new things happening there. I mean, it's harder to be discovered in a city like New York than it is in a city like Nashville in 2013. Do you disagree with that statement? Um, no, I, I think that that's, I think that's true. Uh, I would say in 2021, I'll put, uh, I'll put our five best players on the floor against any five best players in the country. Though. Yeah. And I think that what, what I wanted to go on and continue to say is that there are markets that were that that exist today that were like nashville in 2012 2013 and they're freaking everywhere man Mm -hmm. there are small to medium-sized cities all over the place that want that level of cooking and they can't quite get it and i think that it's important that if you really want to stand out or to create opportunity for yourself you're better off going to a small market that's growing and a lot of those markets are growing right now people are moving out of the big cities what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's almost entirely everything you say. Yeah, I think the biggest driver there probably is economics. Yeah, it's way cheaper to go to. I mean, but, but pick, the world's changing. You pick know? an emerging city and go and hang your shingle out than it is to try and open something on, you know, East Fourteenth Street. Yeah, and we'll come back to this maybe a little bit. I mean, honestly, like, um, it's just like because of COVID nineteen, like more and more people are working remotely and they're going to smaller markets to stretch their dollar and they have, they have disposable income now. So like there's so much opportunity all over the place. Maybe we can come back to that. Sure. Uh, but reflecting before we really get into uh, you opening Josephine, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned at leaning like leading up to this point in your experience? What set you up for success? Uh, I think probably one of the biggest things um, was, kind of staying the path uh, and being continually focused on fundamentals. I think it's too easy to um, get through the fundamental uh, section and then sort of forget about it and you want to move on. I mean, when I was coming up, El Bulli was the the thing. Everybody wanted to make spirified olives. And okay, (laughs) that's fine. But continually refining working on the basics and making sure that you're not skipping steps as you're laying the basic foundation. And, you know, what are those foundational things? I mean, for me, it was, you know, the cleaning of a stock or even still making stocks from scratch. Um, the, you know, the proper chopping of vegetables, you know, all the things that just seem boring to, and I'm not an old guy, but I'm sure that they seem boring to a kid at this point. But it's you've got to really dive into those things. Another really big thing that set me up for success was early on my first two chef jobs. Uh, I had a very small to no staff, so I was responsible for. I mean, you know, in any kitchen, the chef is responsible for everything. I was literally responsible for everything. I would have people who would come in and maybe help me plate on the weekends. Um, the first restaurant that I worked in, we were so short staffed that my parents would come in and help wash dishes on the weekends. Um, so you really get an idea of there's nobody coming to help you. Yeah. And that's a great mentality to have, even if you have a staff of 14. Um, why is that such a great mentality? Why is that so important? Because you just know it ends up, it's, it's always going to end up on your shoulders. The more you progress through the ranks, um, I mean, if you start learning that way, then it's not a culture shock. 
Yeah. It's like, God, yeah, that's fine. It's just, you know, I've got 17 things to do and service starts at five. Well, you better get them done. What's that term when you, when you clinch? Is it clinching metal? The galvanizing. It galvanizes you. Yeah. It makes you hard. It makes yeah. you, if, if you go through it, like you, if you experience, it's like you need that experience of what struggle is to know how good you have. And also when you get back to that place, you're like, I've been here before. You know, you, you don't lose your shit when it happens again. No. I mean, if you've ever watched one of the things that we have a, a video list that uh, is on YouTube and all the cooks, I invite them to this YouTube list. And it's just videos that I've found. Laying in bed at night, I'll go through. And they, the strange thing is, a lot of them aren't cooking videos. There are a lot of great restaurant videos you can, you know. But there are a couple of them where it's just Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. And I'll reference him during service. Can you look like that? Can you be that effortless at what he's doing? And if you can't, then that's where we're going. So uh, what's going through my mind as I'm hearing you say, saying this is you're laying the foundation. You're building the muscle memory. You're taking all the things that would take up bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And you're eliminating that because you're just so used to going through the motion. So your mind can be where it needs to be, which is running the kitchen, which is leading the team. Right. Uh, so on that note about leadership, and I think that that's like this, the whole, like, the whole point of this podcast is to not talk about the food because you're opening a restaurant. I hope you know how to cook. Right. right. So what is all the other stuff that you learned? Uh, this And bring us, give us examples of the standard of the level of what you need to know those things. Um, so we can kind of paint that picture of, of what sets you up for success. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, one of the biggest things for me, I mean, in terms of, uh, mentorship and my mentors coming up, my parents are brilliant people. Um, and so that, if somebody said to me, you know, tell me who your culinary mentors were, it'd be my parents. They don't, they cook at home. They're not professional chefs. Um, but living with them, living with two people who are brilliant and brilliant teachers, um, was one, you've got to be able to teach, especially now. Um, so finding that, you know, learning, coach a little league team, but you know, that kind of stuff is going to help, um, greatly. The, the leadership part of it, I mean, it's all going to be about people. It's, it's dining room, it's food, it's what, no. It's all the energy that the people blow into the four walls of yeah. a restaurant. So Business if you is can't, all relationships. If you can't teach them, if you can't inspire them, I mean, a, another big thing that was a huge help for me was playing um, high school sports, playing sports in general, being part of teams. All of those things, all those lessons um, are were very, very important, continue to be important in, in our day to day here. So I I find that the people who excel in the kitchens are the people who have those experiences in their past or continue to have them. So let's get granular around the subject of teaching your approach of being an educator, your, your approach of being a teacher. How, how do you view teaching? Um, well, I mean, on the, the very basic level, you just, you know, you're trying to provide a new skill or a new outlook or perspective to people. Um, a lot of times, I think too many times in the kitchen, it's viewed as a technique. I'm going to show you how to make a spherified olive. And that's a little bit part of it. I mean, I guess that's two plus two equals four, but 
I'm more interested in, uh, I don't want to, you can read a recipe and you can read a cookbook, but I want to teach you, um, the best way to execute that in these seven different types of environments that you're going to be presented with throughout your time as a line cook. So if I can teach you how to react to each one of those and then how two plus two equals four is going to change to maybe 4.1 or 3.9 within those seven different times, that's the teaching part of it. That's me actually showing you something that you can't get on your own. And that's why I hope, um, people want to come and work at a restaurant like Josephine or Bastion where they can get the individual perspective and experience that I've had outside of something that you could get for $3 in late fees yeah. at the local library. Yeah. And I feel like what you're getting to is like the, um, the, the work of it, like the actual going through the motions, the skill set of being a chef, a cook, um, and those skills beyond reading the recipe. Yeah. But what about the skills when it comes to, uh, the human element of yep. the emotional side of things, of, of tailoring your teaching to the individual. What advice do you have on us around that sort of thing? Everybody's different. Um, every leader's different, but every, every person that's part of the team is different, and they're bringing a different set of things to the door every day. So when you get a new person that comes in and you don't know anything about this person, what's, are you just observing? Like, what's going yeah. on? No, I'm 100% observing. I think a lot of times when um, we get a new person in, they maybe feel like uh, I'm not interacting with them on a one-to-one level as much as maybe they would have expected, and that's by design. I, I'm looking for how are they interacting with everyone else because I'm learning at that point. I'm learning about who they are without even asking them any questions. Prior to that, though, in the interview process, one of the things that I ask is um, uh, sometimes I think that interviews are too they're too one sided. So, you know, if you were interviewing for a spot in the kitchen, I would ask, um, "Where do you want to be in, you know, a year and five years?" Which is a pretty common question. Any you know, that's not even restaurant specific. People ask that all the time. But then I would ask, "What you want out of me? How can I help you get to that spot? What are you looking for?" Because everybody you need money to live yeah um so that's kind of a given you're going to get paid here but what are you looking for from me when you leave here and i expect that you'll leave i want you to to learn everything that you can here and then i expect that you'll leave and i hope that you'll come to me and say i'm really interested in x Uh, can you help me get there because i will I, i want you to go but how can I help you between now and then get to that place? Some people just want to be a badass line cook. That's one type of teaching method that I can provide them. Some people want to be a great chef and chef only. That's another type of skill set that I can teach them and another way of teaching them. And some people want to be a restaurateur. Well, that's another skill set. And so you've got to be able to live in all of those areas for all of those people. And, you know, it's exhausting. There's yeah. no doubt about it. So I think it's important what, what you mentioned is that you expect people to go on. I think that a lot of there's a culture sometimes within the industry with people that don't have the same experience or perspective as you that they almost take it personally and they get angry at the level of transient behavior that exists in our industry. But why is your approach better being expecting it to happen? I don't know that my approach is better. It's just my approach. Um, you should expect it to happen. I mean, there is a, my goal with everyone 
my retirement plan is that uh, everyone who came through this kitchen is going to be operating another kitchen and I can go eat for free in their restaurant. That's how I'm going to get yeah. on when I retire. Um, they need to be better than me yeah. when they leave. And if I've given them everything that I can give them and from a work ethic standpoint and from a motivation standpoint, they have given back everything that they've got, then there's going to come a point in time where in order for them to be better than me, they've got to find something else. Yeah. Or else they're just going to be... It's not about you in your, in your restaurant. It's yeah. about everybody else. And well, yeah. And then when you have... The thing is, when you have that perspective, and I, and I love that you're, you're being humble about it, and you're not saying, I have the answers. Um, and I, this is my perspective, too. And, and you know, I, I welcome all perspectives. But from what I've gathered, when you make it about the person, and you say, what do you want? Where do you want to go? How can I help you get there? When you push... When you take the approach where you're literally trying to push people out of your restaurant, but not, like, get the hell out giving like a kick in the ass but yeah. like how can i empower you to move on mm-hmm. what ends up happening is you end up retaining a lot more people because one they're more grateful you're i mean i think or the other thing is they're they're so appreciative of what you did for them they're referring people to you you know so in the long run i think it, it, it works much better for everybody and, and we've also seen i had uh someone who when i mentioned to them where do you want to be they they're aspiration was that they wanted to be a celebrity chef. And I just said, this isn't the place for you. I, I can't help you get there. I can provide you with a lot of cooking, you know, basic cooking. You can come and work. We can give you a job, but I can't, that's not in my skill set. Yeah. I don't know how to teach you to get there. Go work for a celebrity chef, right? Or, and, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to shit on anybody's dreams, but that's not something that I'm equipped to do. Yeah. So I think it's also okay increasingly it's difficult, but it's also okay to say to someone, I'm not sure if this is the place for you before they even put the coat and the apron on. That's better for both of you. Yeah. You're, you know? I mean, it might be hard to hear the truth, but in the long run, you're saving yourself time. You're saving them time. It's yeah. also hard to turn away Anybody people right at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, that's the, and that's the exhaustion period of it is where you've got, um, the constant, not constant, but the turnover where you're, uh, and I think about my parents, you know, my, my mom taught special education for 20 years and then went and was a sixth grade teacher. Every year you have a new class of students and every year you're teaching the same basic ish curriculum. Well, that's a little bit the situation that we're in here. We get to a point where you've trained people to the point where now it's time, either they've decided or you've decided it's time for them to go. And so then you start over again and you just wake up each morning thinking, I wish I didn't have to start over again. Yeah. But one, that's the challenge. One question uh, before we go to our first break to thank our sponsors. When you said you, you always I'd like to thank the bathroom too for that first break. Cause I really <laughs> have to pee. <laughs> I'll make this a quick one. Um, what do you want is the question you ask when you, what is the power of that question? Then we'll take our break. What is the power of what do you want? Yeah. Uh, what do you get from that question? What do I get or what yeah. do they get? Well, well I, I, get a, I get a perspective of where their head is. Um, but I, f- I hope what they're getting is that they realize that they're not walking into a work environment that's like any other work environment that they've been in before. They're walking into a work environment where I'm, I'm focused on where they're going to be, not where I'm going to be a year and five years from now, but where they're going to be. And I feel like if I focus on where they're going to be a year and five years from now, then my year and five years from now will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm trying to empower them from the interview standpoint yeah. of, you know, this is kind of what we're all about here. We're not about putting, you know, 17 courses of the food. Again, the food somewhat takes care of itself, but if you can have people who buy in and they buy in because they know that you're interested in them, you're buying into them. So they buy into the overall. Yep. Then hopefully that, that works out. Sometimes it doesn't, it's not all, we don't have anything figured out. It's just where we're, it's yeah. what we're going with. But like, like in the book, good to great, they talk about getting people on your bus, but not just getting them on your bus, but putting them in the right seat. Right. And when you know where they want to go, you can help you can that helps you put them on the right path yeah and it also is self-serving because they might have a passion for so they do want to be a celebrity chef right mm-hmm. but they're also a damn good fucking cook right right now you know that they might be interested in social media in in that element of promotion mm-hmm. now if you know that that's what they want they're going to take that responsibility you can give them that responsibility you can give them resources and be like you know, sharpen the saw, the saw, like get good at it and help us in the process of helping yourself. And I think the real key to being an effective leader and teacher is sometimes you have to go to that person and say, I think that seat's uncomfortable for you. Yeah. If they're not good for it, right? Let's move into a different seat. And that's a hard thing to do. But also that's, it's your job to help people become more self-aware. It's hard, but it's probably the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. If you came into me and you said, I want to sit right there and I helped you get there. And I'd be like, well, all right, that was kind of easy. But if I had to go to you and be like, I don't think so, but I've seen this yes. wrinkle on what you do. Then all of a sudden, five years from now, I can, you know, we can, we have that connection of, you know, we change seats and yeah. man, that's been a good thing. A lot of self-awareness doesn't come from yourself. It comes from other people giving you information about yourself. And right? then you have to have the courage to be able to take it. Exactly. Great spot to take our first break to thank our sponsors and yeah. for you to use the I would love to use the bathroom. <laughs> we'll be right back. You know Restaurant Unstoppable's mission because I'm constantly echoing it. It's to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo Bar Academy because they have the same goals in I am just filled with hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources, and it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards. No matter your background or your skill level, there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting over at Diageo Bar Academy that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step-by-step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye-catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand pour costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars' expectations, and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond masterclasses like this. You can also join live events and watch all past masterclasses on demand at www.diageobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diageobaracademy.com has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest 
industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. All right, we're back. And now I really want to start getting into um, your transition to the building, Josefina. And the majority of my guests are owners. And the reason why is because you're opening a restaurant. I hope you can cook, right? But can you do all the other stuff? And I love that owner perspective of running the restaurant, not necessarily um, being in the kitchen. But I also love getting your perspective because what are you looking for when you're looking to get into a partnership with people? Like, what is your, the dynamic of the relationship between you and the other people at this restaurant? Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is the uh, a shared vision, and that needs to go all the way from the. Um, you know, the investor owner partnership all the way to the dishwashers, all the way to, um, successful vendor relationships. Yeah. The shared vision. If you, if you can agree on the shared vision, then you can pretty much do anything. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have aspirations or did you ever have aspiration to own a restaurant? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, that's kind of the dream all the time is, uh, well, I don't know. It's actually not for a lot of people. I mean, I wouldn't blame you if it wasn't, honestly. Like, well, I think that there are it's a lot of headaches that come with ownership. I think that it is, it evolves like anything else throughout life. You, you, maybe what you wanted when you were 25 is different than what you want when you're 47. Absolutely. And then, you know, maybe part of it too is just how, um, how you're viewed within, uh, the community or your peer group, you know, for the longest time, it was, um, those kind of things, you know, are you, are you a corporate chef? Are you a, uh, small independent restaurant chef? Are you chef owner? Like all those different things. And, you know, the reality of it is what is your perspective? Do you have something to say? I think that that's really important. A lot of times when people go into, opening restaurants um you need for me at least the the best restaurants are ones that have a very clear perspective and if you can delineate that perspective to everyone and that that's the people that i've already listed but then if the guest gets it then i feel like you've been successful that's the gauntlet that you need to run through is can you provide this clear perspective um for everyone that interacts with and walks through the door. And if it's not there, that's where you run into problems. So in this restaurant, Josephine, are you steering the ship as far as brand and like the, the feeling and how, if that's the case, if that's your lane, if that's your responsibility, how do you draw the lines between those lanes to, to get that autonomy from the ownership to let you do that? Well, that's having a shared, shared vision of what it is. And there's also compromise in everything. Yeah, you know, there's compromise in every every space of life. I would guess that when uh, they rebuilt Noma, there was compromise in doing that, even though it's something that seems like was probably without compromise. Um, so those things are always there, and I think that um, communication—it's uh, you know—if you want to lose weight, what do you do? You eat right and you exercise. 
easiest thing in the world. Nobody does it. Like you just, it's very difficult it's to do. D- conceptually easy d- to do it, to so, have the discipline. Same thing in life, same thing in business. It's, you know, it all comes down to communication and relationships. And they're the two most difficult things, period. So what is your advice for somebody who's listening to this who is, is passionate about the industry, uh, they're passionate about the, the business of restaurants, but they really maybe don't have the desire to actually own or have equity in the business because they, they want to have their lane. They want to be responsible for one element of the business, not the whole shabam. Find somebody who's a good partner for you. Yeah. So shared vision. Yep. What else? Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's really the biggest thing. Also knowing that you don't know anything. Uh, you know, it's the, the things I learned after I knew it all are the, the most, you know, those are the thing, the best things. Um, when, when we opened here, I wasn't very good with, I mean, I was a, I was in the kitchen. I was food focused, plate focused. And the first time something broke, I had to figure out how to fix it. So that's, that's an area where I feel like, uh, my education at CIA probably didn't live up to what I wanted it to be because honestly, I don't care as much. It's not that I don't care about them. I had a three week class in the cuisines of Asia. If you really back up and think about how absurd that sounds, it is the cuisines of Asia. That's in three weeks. Massive. Right. Yeah. But what if I had had in three weeks basics of refrigeration basics of fixing gas stoves basics of hvac these are the tools that you need to buy yeah when you open a restaurant my my background my education was aviation commercial aviation flight i was a commercial pilot yeah and thinking of what you're saying right now we had exactly that classes where it was all about systems airplane systems like how how do do these things work? Like right. what is the inner working? And you're right. We don't talk about like what is uh like what are all like the different types of systems that are in a kitchen and how do they work? Why wouldn't and, you teach that? And that's what you need to know. Yeah. If I want to go and I want to know about the cuisines of Asia, well, I'm going to go and work at a Thai restaurant. Teach me the basics of how to use a knife, the basics of how to use equipment. But then if I'm on a plane and you're the pilot, and something goes wrong with one of the systems, I don't give a shit that you know how to fly to Asia. I really care that you know how to fix that system. Yeah. You need to be able to know, like, uh, you need to be able to identify what's happening based off of whatever your instruments are telling you. So, yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest things is you need to also be able to identify when you're in over your head. There are some things that operators and chefs, and they just shouldn't, you need to leave that to the pros, but 90% of the stuff, if you know how to do it or you're blessed with YouTube, you can figure out how to fix it. But again, rarely about the cooking. Yeah. So on that note of systems, uh, we're talking about like hard systems, like your, the the actual tools you're using, but what about the soft systems that you're creating to make things go nicely? Like checklists, like, like how to, how to create consistency in your restaurant. I'm actually happy to have you here because really I get a lot of requests from listeners to go deeper into the, the back of house oh, operations. Sure. Google drive. Probably the best thing we've ever done. Why? Uh, it, it basically open source. Uh, our kitchen is and restaurant is entirely open source. So everything that we do 
is on Google Drive somewhere, including how to get to our storage unit, where the key is, and where everything is located, down to the step. So what that does is when you start and you're new in the kitchen, we still do, you know, all the cooks still have the notebook in the back of their pocket, but everything's on Google Drive. So when they go home, they can find recipes, they can find vendors that we use, they can find the uh, user manual for the fryer. Um, all of that stuff is open to them and then open to the waiters so that if they want to know about a food allergy in the lobster roll, it's, yeah. on, it's on your phone. Going back to my aviation experience, one of the things that they taught us is you don't have to know the answer to everything. No, you have but, to know where to find it. But you do have to know where to mm-hmm. find it. And that's... I mean, why why take up that mental bandwidth if you know where to find it? And like, that's super important. So yeah. making it accessible. And so that's the thing. I mean, when I was coming up, everything was in a notebook. There was the pastry notebook. There was, the, you know. Um, now, because of technology and our ability to take great photos, and you can basically create a cookbook that's available for everyone who works there. And that's also part of the deal. When you go to a great restaurant, you're going for the experiences. You're also going to learn some of their recipes because they're going to show up. I mean, some of those, if those dishes and techniques didn't rub off on you, then you weren't paying attention. Yeah. And if wherever you become a chef, it's not very easy for past chefs to look and be like, okay, I see, I yeah. see me there. Um, but that's part of the deal with the sort of open source idea of um, nothing that we have as a secret. And again, it's because back to what we referenced earlier, those two recipes that we each have that are the same, uh, unless you and I have a shared experience of a chef, they're going to be different. Yeah. What about managing the numbers, cost of goods sold, bottom line, menu engineering, things like that? Uh, Very important, obviously. Is there Um, an area that you geek out on the most that of what I mentioned, or is there something that I did not mention that you really think that needs to be discussed? No, I mean, I think the biggest thing is to set yourself up systems that, again, allow you to clear mental space to deal with the other things that are going to happen throughout your day. So you have clearly defined schedule. You have clearly defined ordering systems. um, And I do, we don't have a program for it. I do everything through Excel. Um, We are, you know, constantly working with our vendors to stay within certain um, price areas so the i I like to call it you know the invisible hand of uh, restaurant profitability. If you've set up systems and you can stay within the guidelines that have been set up, now think about the guest experience now think about these so other things getting people you're in the recreating door. yourself in systems mm-hmm. so you can hand that off and have expectations and standards for the people that you're handing that off to yeah, I mean the ultimate goal is to not be here yeah so what was that process of getting to your, your systems to where they are now? How did that evolve over time? Where did you start? Uh, you start with every, uh, I mean, you have to start somewhere. You have to put a framework together based on your past experiences, but then it's also identifying areas that can be better, identifying mistakes. I can't think of, of a good one right now. Probably one of the best ways that we do it is about yearly. And we didn't do it during COVID um, we'll kind of put everything out to bid for lack of a better term. We just, you know, talk to vendors and say, Hey, this is kind of where we're at. Um, what do you have? 
you know, is it, is this a situation where we want to, you know, maybe we want to make a change, but it provides you with a really good perspective. And then the, the best teacher is, uh, obviously mistakes or, um, figuring out like a good example, these, uh, cookies that are packaged sitting on the front desk. Um, everyone, when you leave, that's sort of our, you know, in the the Michelin three-star restaurant, you get the huge display of all the cookies and candies. Well, we're not doing that here, but I wanted to recreate that somehow. I wanted people to leave with something, but not something that immense. Also, we don't have a pastry kitchen. I mean, our entire kitchen would be a pastry kitchen. We're going to get. In, I think. I think we're going to get into this with the whole. You shouldn't strive to be a fifty top. Um, <laughs> so uh, those are a great example. Yeah, it's a a number that is not necessarily quantifiable. I mean, it's you know, if we're going to do hundred and ten covers tonight, we need to have X. But you know, you might come and you've been here three times. And you know, you really like those. And when the host is looking the other way, you're going to take four bags of them. Mm. I mean, good on you. I'm glad you like them. <laughs> but that's not something that we can say we're going to have 20 orders of this tonight. Yeah. So we needed to set up a system mm-hmm. for not running out of those. Yeah. We also needed to set up a system for making sure that we have, you know, the bags or something that are ordered in. Yeah. Well, there needs to be a system so we make sure we don't run out of those. Those kind of things. The only way we came about setting up a system for that is because we ran out of those once. So this it's is going to happen. Yeah. So you don't know until you know. And I think what the, the how did we start today's conversation? What was the quote you gave us? A little bit better every day. Exactly. Right. Just start documenting. Just even if it's the most rudimentary, to like have a piece of paper. You walk in the front door. What are the things I did today? Right. What are the things I need to do to get this place open? Right. Turn the lights on. Turn the stove on. You just start making a list of all the things you have to do. Then you have your list. Then the list gets better the next day. Then there's one thing you forgot. You add that to the list. Right. Eventually. You got most things covered. And even then, there's going to be something once a quarter that happens that you didn't think of. It's always, I mean, that list is always going to be the same size. Just start documenting. But, you know, punch list is a perfect example. Um, You know, you go through when you're trying to get the place open and you're working with their contractor and they're, you know, good. But you always have to have a punch list. Yeah. Always. And I start just about every day with that. These are things that, you know, we can refine, we can get better. These are also things that we've just... Uh, after two or three years, we've been, we have a, f- a high retention rate. People who have been here for two, three, four years. Sometimes uh, you see the same things over and over again. It's, it's nice to have a fresh set of eyes. Coming back from, we were just in, uh, spent 10 days in Napa. Well, coming back, I was able to see things that I didn't see before we left because I'm in it all the time. Well, those things go on the list you have to be constantly evolving. And that's why I think that, um, the, the best new restaurant, uh, category, <laughs> you always see it. Uh, I'm, I don't even know what magazines have it, but you know, or the, the beard awards have a best new restaurant. It's ludicrous. It, it's sort of the best of the worst. <laughs> there is no best new restaurant because they're all evolving. We were not a good restaurant for yeah. probably the first I'm going to say 18 months. Well, that we you were opened open. in 2013 13, yeah. and uh, it took at least four years for you to get to the point where you started getting industry nods for, I mean, you're probably getting, I know you got 2017 and 18, 17 and 18. Yeah. yeah. And we really opened, we opened in December of 13. So really 14, but it was all of 14 and most of 15 where we were. And, and it, here's the difference is that we were, I say we were not a good restaurant in my eyes. The seats were still 
people were still coming to eat. People were still enjoying the product that we had. It just wasn't what I knew we could be. And it's also part of an evolutionary process of that list has to become more specific every day. So you're, you're crossing these things off and you're trying to get better. And in the process of getting better every day, you're able to drill down. Now, reflecting back from 2013 to 2017, 18, when you really started to, to get to where you were, you, even at that point, were you where you wanted to be? No, I'm still not right now. So what were the biggest evolutionary points in Josephine that started getting you the, the different attention and accolades, <laughs> if any? I don't know. I mean, that's the thing with uh, with restaurants is that uh, I guess a lot like fashion. I don't know a ton about the the fashion world, but I know that there are, you know, there um, you'll find these lists like uh, heat maps and you know the the hottest restaurants. And well, who's controlling that narrative? And and what is that? What does that mean? (laughs) They're busy because they're new. I mean, I, I don't. I have trouble wrapping my head around that yeah. because there are a lot of new restaurants that I've been to. <laughs> We're both chomping at the bit to get into this conversation. And, <laughs> and I walk into them and I just think this is a very nice atmosphere, but the, the back of the house needs some more reps. And, and that's, you know, that's something that again, as your listeners are, who are trying to open places, um, you're never going to have as much time leading up to open the doors as you think you need. So you've got to be ready for it and you've got to be ready to make changes in the moment. You're not going to have spring training. It's going to be opening day. Yeah. I mean, you're spring, you're going to be lucky to have half the time that you think you're going to have. So I go into these new restaurants that are just packed with people. The kitchen's overwhelmed. The front of the house is overstaffed because that's just the common, that's what people do. You hire twice the amount of people you used to. Now you hire whatever you can hire. Um, but there are too many back waiters. The back waiters don't know what they're supposed to be doing because the front waiters also are not really sure what's going on because they're not even sure what the table numbers are. I mean, it's just best new restaurant is like, why don't you give them a year and a half? Then let's see. Yeah. And it's easy to bust out of the gate. I mean, you get a, um, you get some good, uh, press behind you and everybody loves the new thing. Um, Everybody wants to go scope out what the new restaurant is. You live in a neighborhood. You want to be that neighbor who is in the know with what the new restaurant is. We had a a guest I talked to on Sunday night, and she came up to me and she said, you know, I love coming here. And one of the things that I'm so impressed with is a lot of times there are peaks and valleys with restaurants. And I don't disagree with that. And I would even submit to you that we have our own peaks and valleys, but from the guest perspective, she enjoys coming here because she said, even after almost eight years, you've been able to continue at a level where it's still great. And sometimes people just let their guard down and a new restaurant comes in that people want to go to. And, and then it's time is over and, you know, very much, um, a living, breathing thing. And I, that meant a lot to me because that means that the, you know, the concept of, of doing a little bit better every day is easier for us to see when we're in it to know that the guest feels it was great what is the biggest quality about you that has enabled that to happen uh probably just sticking with it yeah and yeah. i think uh, even my research about you 
it's you, you said that you you're always learning. You're a student. You're constantly yeah. learning. And I think it's so important to take on that student mentality in this industry because the industry is constantly evolving too, and we're learning so. We're just, there's you'll never stop learning. And if you yeah. think that you reach this place where you've gotten there, then that's when things start to get stagnant, right? So if you're if you're constantly trying to learn, constantly trying to improve, it, it has to happen. You right. have to be like that. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about before we start kind of free flowing in just generally the industry and your perspectives on the industry, uh, talk about personal brand because as a chef, you're you're managing the brand of a restaurant, but you also have to manage your own personal brand. Uh, so, are you intentional at all with how you present yourself and how you and how you put yourself out there, your own personal brand that you own? Yeah, I mean, you have to be. Um, there's a percentage of people who are coming because they've just heard that the food is good. Great. And there's a percentage of people who are coming because they follow you on Instagram and they think that you're funny or they like your perspective and point of view. And I think that social media um, has provided chefs with an outlet to be able to expand on what their perspective is. And it's another area. It's, I mean, it's all free basically. So if you can take a decent photo, which who can't with the technology today and you take the time to put it out there and you craft your own personal narrative that then is, I mean, in a chef driven restaurant, there's that line starts to get blurry. Um, but I also feel like that's a bit of a double edged sword. Um, I think that social media is, has been, uh, a great thing for, uh, the evolution of restaurants. I also think it's one of the worst things that has happened to creativity and has happened to, um, dining in the past couple of years as well. Okay. Let's shelf that. Um, because I want to come back to it and I think it's important. Um, uh, but what about, okay, I'm getting at your shoes, for example, like yeah. what, what's the, the, the intentionality behind your shoes? Uh, well, they're front and center in the brand of the restaurant and sure. your own personal brand. So is there thought behind that? Yeah. Um, I wanted something that, you know, when you go to, and, and I try not to go to too, too many of them anymore, but we used to go to a lot of food festivals and, when you go to a food festival and there are 200 people in line for your little two ounce portion of whatever, um, they're not going to remember that. I don't care how good it is and I don't care what chef is, uh, preparing it. They're just not going to remember that, but they're going to remember. So this is, um, and and unfortunately he's, you know, he's turned out to be a, a bad human, but, um, the tally's orange clogs. Yeah. That was a thing for him. <laughs> and um, it became something that, you know, people talked about that. I have, throughout the course of my career, I've worn a bunch of different clogs. I settled on ones that were wood, um, sold for uh, back and health purposes. And then I found a guy in Portland who makes them by hand and will make them to any, you just tell him what you want. I'm also a, a, I have a golf problem. So, uh, these are meant to look like old school golf shoes. That's why they look, but they also are remarkable to people. They remember the shoes. Well, they remember you. I mean, like they, and it's, it's a unique selling proposition. It's something that is unique to just you and your person that when people 
hear your name or they see something, it, it, it's important to have those things. Sure. For me, being completely frank, I like to wear a hat and I like to flip the brim up a little bit. Yep. And I always wear kind of loud shoes too. Like little things like that to 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 associate with your personal brand mm-hmm. is important. You have to be mindful of that stuff. Well, and I when I was the one semester I did spend getting uh, trying to get my teaching certification, uh, I had a professor who in the first week or two he was bald but he had this beard yeah and i don't remember the reason that he shared with us this lesson but he said what is he would just ask someone in the class look at me very quickly and tell me the first thing that you think of and they said well your beard and he said that's why i have it because if i didn't have it the first thing you would say is that i was bald and Mm. i'm self-conscious about being bald and so in my head i was like grow where you can well but also (laughs) like it's hey you need something because yeah. there are a ton of people that can cook well. There are a ton of people with, you know, very expensive PR firms and better stores and better, better, better. But can you sit in somebody's head and how? And so if that's it and they also are great for my back, then that's a win. But yes, also part of the personal brand. I mean, we are probably coming into the season, but uh, the red and black check Buffalo plaid has be, is kind of a thing uh, for us too, and that it's a you know Woolrich, which is a Pennsylvania brand, which is where I grew up in Pennsylvania. I also come from a very working class uh, area of the country. Both of those things are who I am as a person. So when people see that, I want them to associate that my background with that, and has also become kind of a thing. So yes, individual and personal branding is important. Um, to the extent that it drives people into the restaurant or to the brand. Yeah, I love it. Awesome stuff. So, restaurant, I'll say it again Restaurant Unstoppable's mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And in my, my evolution as an individual and as a, a podcast host, this idea of transformation originally in my mind is, is if you could transform the restaurant owner one person at a time, you could empower the restaurant industry over time, like you could, we, could cha- we could transform the industry. But this thought of like where we're headed into the future right now, and a lot of I think there's a lot of issues with our industry, and I would like to use this podcast to develop a narrative of what needs to change and how we can change, so we can go into the future a little bit more intentionally. We've already identified some of the things uh, that you think are issues in the industry, and we, we we're going to shelf them. We're we're coming back to that now. So you were talking about why. Uh, it doesn't make sense, or I don't want to put words in stream up, but you're referencing the 50 best restaurants. Where are we going with that thought? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think chasing a definitive, and I, even going back a little further in the, um, we'll check to see how closely people were listening to the podcast. Um, my my life was uh, as a professional musician was based on achievement, and so then having things like world's 50 best or uh forbes or the james beard awards or you name it michelin star michelin stars kind of although you have to be in a certain spot for those but okay um is a way of gauging achievement it's a way to say i made it but maybe that's a path that you don't or we shouldn't be going down why well, what are you chasing then? What happens when you get there? I mean, yeah. there's a very, I call it famous. There was an article, uh, and then I think it was in the New York Times with uh, Daniel Hume, uh, 11 Madison Park, years ago when they got to 
they were number one on World's 50 Best. And his, the whole point of the article was he kind of looked around and was like, still the same. Okay, what <laughs> yeah. do we do now? Yeah. And so what do you do now? What, when the, the carrot, when you get the carrot, then what are you shooting for? And who's, who matters? Do the, the people who are judging the world's 50 best or James, you pick it. I'm going to say world's 50 best now because it's just, it's a good catch all doesn't mean just them but it's, it's all of these things why does that matter to an individual there could be people in who are coming up now who's that's that's where i want to be okay but then you're letting the people who are in charge of awarding those 50 or 100 or whatever you're letting them rule your life your creativity all these different not things. just you but the narrative of the entire industry the entire industry that cares. Yeah. And I think increasingly what we're seeing is, and I, I got a fair amount of response for this because I, I just put it, it was something that I thought. And so I, I put out on Instagram when the world's 50 best came out, I went and I looked at it and then I went to the website and I looked at, so you get little thumbnails of each restaurant. And I just thought, man, of these 50 thumbnails, the food all looks the same. It could be 50 courses from the same restaurant. And I was surprised. I thought when I put that out into the world that I was going to get a fair amount of pushback from Ridicule. people who were, well, you're just jealous that you aren't on it, which I'm not. Where Obviously, this isn't the kind of place yeah. for that. And what I got was people saying, yeah, you know, you're you're right. I looked at it, too, and it was kind of like, and I don't, and then some people were just like, I don't even know if I really care about that anymore. People that I know years ago did. Yeah. Uh, so I guess to finish all that off is one of the open ended things that I think we have to think about as an industry is what does matter. If we were so amped up on having the 50 best or the James Beard awards or the, the Michelin stars, we were so amped up on, on all of those and there's still going to be a percentage of people who always are going to be but the larger percentage of restaurants and the people who are going to really move the needle aren't in those places they're just not i mean you know there's something to be said for every kind of generation of cooks you go through a restaurant and i would for me i would say that in the the 90s it was trotter and and the french laundry pushing this multi-course situation in the United States then probably switches to El Bulli and then switches to Noma I think that's a pretty fair assessment you need to have them to kind of push one way but life's in the middle most of us are in the middle so what are we all chasing 99.9% of us even more than that are in the middle in the middle yeah and so as a as an industry and as people what can we do and what what are the things that we should be chasing? What's our carrot? And I don't have the answer to this, but I will say that I think that there are some things that we should be focusing on that we're not. One of the things is social media. Can we shelf social? Yeah. I want to reflect on what you shared up to this point. Okay. Um, so to reinforce a lot of the things 
we, like you said, like people are getting into this industry. They have these aspirations, whether it's they in their mind aren't successful unless they have a Michelin star or a James Beard award. And I need to reinforce that. But the other thing too, in my perspective, being somebody who travels around the country. And originally when I first started this podcast, it was those lists that I was looking at Mm -hmm. to find out who I should talk to. And what I've discovered is that these people who we are aspiring to be like are at the top of their game, right? We are all trying to be where these people are. A lot of them aren't happy. A lot of them aren't in a great mental place. A lot of them are also, their businesses aren't sustainable. They're, we are celebrating these businesses that are trying to, their priority is wow factor experience. And to do that, it's extremely expensive. It's not to, to do that consistently. It costs a lot of money. It's not sustainable. And I think that our industry needs to put more emphasis on fiscal responsibility on being profitable because we have a responsibility to the people that we're employing to, to keep them. You know what I'm Do you know where I'm going with this? I feel like it's just messed up, but we're, the expectation is unreasonable and we're moving. Even the world we live in today is moving away from that high touch personal, like, uh, experience and we're competing with the 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 online experience the at-home experience and it's it's becoming even more unsustainable so like why are we still celebrating and telling everybody that this is the goal this is the objective because we are I so mean, this is why we need to have these conversations we need to take the control these are there's five publications that control the narrative of the, the industry and i know that these people probably don't have ill intent but what they're doing is is really affecting the industry and the other part of this too is that the world's changed when those when those publications came out in like the late 90s or early 2000s or whenever it was the 80s there were fewer restaurants that operated at that level ever since 2007 when we could peer we use our, our mobile device to peer across the world and see what restaurants are doing across the world. Like the bar started being raised. Now you have more restaurants than ever that are operating at that high, high, high level. And how are you going to tell me that only 50 make the list when there's in reality, thousands of restaurants that are operating at that level. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, obviously going through what we continue to be in, it's not over. What we have continued to be in with COVID has changed uh, a lot of people, a lot of dynamics, a lot of businesses. One thing, and, and you know, to be clear, prior to COVID, the restaurant industry was going through a uh, a reckoning. Maybe is the best way to look at it um, of you know exactly the things that you said probably more on the human side than the financial side, but I agree 100% with you about the financial side. Yeah. I mean, if you want to make a world, it's, it's like, um, I forget, I think it was as far as, um, you know, wineries go. Yeah. How do you, how do you make a million dollars at a, in a vineyard? Start with 2 million. Well, how do you make a world's 50 best restaurant? Start with 10 million bucks yeah. and piss on it and light it on fire. <laughs> and you can have a world's 50 right. best restaurant because it, it's formulaic. And I think that's the thing that if you plug it into the formula, there's a high probability that you'll win. Now, what you're talking about and what I would like to spend an entire another episode or waste your afternoon <laughs> addressing is that we are doing it wrong. And by we, I mean the people, those five publications, but I would also submit to you that there are, there's the more than that. into it too. There's, and so, you know, do we need 
you know, d- does the the color palette of restaurants from a human perspective need to evolve 100% yes there is no doubt about it we need every type of person running uh, running restaurants working in restaurants is the way the quickest way to get that to start to you know find uh, the small per- the very very small percentage right now of people that are that are doing that and elevate them. Yes, that's the quickest way. What I want to know is the best way to do it is let's get and talk to the kids. Let's find kids who we can say, this is a great job. It's a hard job. You have a perspective in life. Let's get to those kids. Let's start training programs. That's what the narrative should be in all of the magazines. And they really want to fix it. But I would submit to you that I don't think they do. I think they want people to buy their magazines. Yes. Yeah. They have, they have different motives, but the thing yeah. is, what what this industry, what we've been guilty of, is not controlling our own narrative and letting other people control it for us. So that's the beauty of the entire reason that when you sent the email, I was like, I want to do that because it's it is and raising the number of gatekeepers because before you're right there and everybody knew who they were. Yet I've worked in restaurants where there were pictures. Of the you know they you knew if this person came into the restaurant you just flip through the notebook and that's you know that's who's going to make or break what's happening right now the ability for us to have this conversation and I hope somebody hears what we're talking about and says you know what we need to start a school program we need to start a training program that actually pays kids to get and every kid. Every kid should have the opportunity to want to get into it. If they love cooking and they love restaurants, somebody hears this and says, that's a really good idea. And what it really needs to be is it needs to have somebody hear this and say, I want to fund that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think resources like this, I'm not the only one. There's more and more restaurant podcasts coming yeah. up where people are getting at the reality of what's happening mm-hmm. and sharing the truth or what's happening. I think we also need to change the values of the industry because guess what? We, if we get aligned, if the industry gets aligned, if the industry has a shared vision of what we want it to be, yep. then these motherfuckers have to kind of follow our, we control it. You know what I'm saying? And as long as we communicate, as long as we share what's wrong, as long as we, I think conscious capitalism is going to be a big part of the future, but we need to inject consciousness into the consumer yeah. in order for them to make purchasing decisions with their dollar. You and know? I think the big thing for us too is I, the challenge and some of the articles that have been out there is the, uh, the challenge has been put to chefs, restaurateurs to be better, do better. That's the that has been the focus of a lot of the articles, and I agree with that one hundred percent. I also would tell you though that uh, there are a ton of chefs and restaurateurs and who are being better, doing better. They're not out there with a PR firm thumping their chest about how they're doing. They're actually just doing it. But there needs to be an article about we're 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 here with open arms. If I go and shake your hand, that requires you putting your hand out to shake well, mine. I'm tempted to do that. It's so, hard for me not to do it right now. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, you know, the amount of people, we will change the, the way the restaurant industry works. But we can only do that if we don't, if we can get around this idea of people who are coming into the business, treating it as the way the business was 20 years ago. 
the no call, no show, even for a job interview, like those kind of things, there has to be another hand reaching out and saying, yes, I want to come into this evolved restaurant business. I want to be part of this because now it is better and we start to get better because I can't do it on my own. Neither can any other chef or restaurateur. It's going to require people coming into it. And that's a different mindset. Yeah. But I think it it starts with self value and understanding the value of food and understanding that like, if we're going to be a real business, we need to get what money we need to, to take care of our people, to create those opportunities. 100%. And that comes down to alignment sharing knowledge and understand people being like, you know, you don't just make up a number on a price for your menu. It's an equation. You're, you're engineering that price. You have, there's a margin that you're making. There's engineer, there's things that you can do to make sure that to, to say that 10% is doing good is ludicrous. You know, like we need to start communicating in communicating to the consumer that if you want this experience, it comes with, a dollar price. So I think that's what people in the business call a smooth segue because that's the other thing that people that I would love to see food writers tackle and you can't just tackle it once. You can't just write one thing about it. And one food writer just can't write one thing about it. Everybody needs to get on board with, I mean, we are, we are a country of cheap food. We are a country of cheap experiences. And we need more food writers out there pushing the narrative of in order for these places to be viable, sustainable, but great businesses and great industries to work in, that has a value associated with it. So, you know, we, we need people pushing those narratives. You and I can push them, but those narratives need to drill down into the conscience, consciousness of the general public. Yeah. And, you know, there are areas where people can go. I mean, I don't even know the exact number. I know that when when Karen and I go to an EMP or a per se or a French laundry, we just automatically know it's going to cost $1,000. And you go to those places. And for us, that's a decidedly special occasion place. Or And those places are, you know, there's only so much that food can cost at yeah. some point. But for a place like Josephine um, or, frankly, again, most restaurants those margins are very slim and they're slim because we know that there is a value proposition happening at the table that people are looking at the menu and they're seeing price X and they're deciding one, if they should get a first course or if they should split it, or they're deciding if they should get the bottle of wine that's $175 or the bottle of wine that's $99. All of that's happening at the table. And I think that it is generally uh, an, I would say misinformed, not uninformed. I would say it's it, misinformed. People don't understand what the costs are yeah. and, but that's, associated with but running a business, the, in, the, the restaurant business. Yeah, the restaurant industry is also guilty for kind of buying in over the past 50 years of buying into perceived value more for less. Right. So we've – and we've fucking fed people poison sure. as a result of it. And, and that's continue why we're still, to. Yeah. But it's the perceived value of food that we've destroyed and now right. we need to re-inject that back into society and say, guess what? Food done well that's healthy and organic and all these things that you want as the consumer is expensive. And it should be. The average consumer used to spend somewhere upwards of like 20 plus percent of their total income on food. Today it's like 9%, 11%. It's actually climbing a little bit because more people are eating out. But generally speaking, we just don't value food like we used to. It's literally, it's it's life. You know, earlier you had mentioned all of these uh, mid to small tier markets where there's opportunity. 
And I don't disagree with that. But what is also required is when you restauranter X goes into those markets, that market may say that they want that type of restaurant. But the way they really say that they want that type of restaurant is by going there. Yeah. And so it requires, you know, it takes a village. It takes people coming in and actually buying into and not, again, you know, we touch on the upper echelon, the upper one half of 1% of restaurants, the, you know, the pure destination restaurants. I'm not even talking about them because in my mind, I'm not sure how much they're not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are, they have a, a clear perspective of what they want to do. They have a love of hospitality. They have a love of wine and they want to open a restaurant. They want to share that with people. Yeah. That's the 99%. And so again, that goes back to, you know, you can learn more with a cup of coffee sitting at a Waffle House watching that one or two cooks with no tickets cook for an entire restaurant than you can working at a Michelin three-star restaurant. Yeah. I've loved this. I really have loved this conversation. We haven't talked about social media, I don't think. Or are you tying? Are you kind of dancing around that with the subject right now? Yeah. I mean, I, I have, you know, I think the social media has been very good to, to me and to us as a restaurant. I also feel like you, there's an virtually no way to go to a hyper creative, hyper original restaurant anymore because of social media. Everyone is copying and borrowing at a rate that is incredible because it's all right in front of you. Yeah. I mean, you could say that's exactly what was happening for the years prior to social media. We're going, getting experience from people who are successful, copying, manipulating a little bit to make it our own. Mm -hmm. But now, like you're saying, it's just happening at an exponential rate Man, yeah. because we can literally peer into the kitchen of any restaurant that's successful. And, you know, cooks don't smoke anymore. So now the smoke break is getting on Instagram and seeing what somebody's doing in Belgium. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. And, and, and that's great. It's great to have that access. But I think at some point you need to turn that off if, from a truly creative perspective. And this probably puts us back in the kitchen more than it does in the building out of a restaurant, but in the building out of a restaurant, having that clear perspective is something that's very important. And knowing that, uh, what is it? The miles Davis quote that, you know, you've got to play a long time before you can play like yourself. Well, that's absolutely true. And to find a restaurant that is truly unique is something that you can't find through a PR company. It's something that you will probably not find on Instagram. I mean, I think that's why everyone, I, I, now her name escapes me, but um, uh, the, the street street vendor, the, oh, in the, Thailand? the woman in Thailand. Yeah, you know, well, they, it's in a, featured in a documentary that was just, it's on a chef's table, I yeah, think. Yeah. Is, and so, you know, to find situations like that and people like that who are doing truly unique stuff. I'm working on it, man. Is, is great. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that's where we should be going. And it all comes down to what do you want? What does the individual want? Do you still want to be chasing X, Y, and Z? Or do you, do you find a great deal of value and validation in guest experience or in, you know, he's going to go on and he's going to run a great restaurant someday. I'm pointing to my sous chef now. Obviously I know we're, we're on the the podcast, but um, do you find your validation and value in that? Yeah. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable is to re-inject perspective values. What what should you be chasing? Because at the end of the day, like you said, uh, Chef uh, Hume at 11 Madison Park, he got there. Right. And he's like, okay. Now what do I do? 
Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm thinking of Mel Harrington, who we just recently had on the show. And I'm, I'm, I mean, if you listen to the show, you know who I'm talking about. She is a, a woman who was like, I'm busting my ass. I'm working all these crazy hours. And like, for what? Like, I re- this is what I want. I want to have a business out of my house where I can have dinner clubs and do it out of a barn and just be happy with that. And like, and just, that's all I want. And like, I think we need to re readjust our expectations and really readjust what is really important, which is relationships and being able to do the thing you love. And if you can do that and live a modest lifestyle, isn't that success? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's going to be success for a lot of people. I think that people defining their individual view of success is very important. Yeah. Um, and then reverse engineering it. Exactly. And I think that also comes down to the cooks and the waiters who are coming into restaurants is, um, what are you looking for? You know, again, that, that goes back to my, my interview question. And is it the best place for you to be, to go and have a Michelin three-star restaurant on your resume or multiple ones? Yeah. Or, do you want that or do you want to go into a restaurant environment that is different, but has, you know, X, Y, and Z things. And I think for the longest time, it was always, when I was coming up, it was, I'm going to go work at the French laundry. I'm going to, you know, that's where people wanted to be. But now you could come to Nashville and you could go and work at, you know, work at Josephine. You could work at Bastion. You could work at Capricci. You could work at all these places that I will 100% put them up against the best places take all the stuff away take away the bernardo china you take away the you know the zalta glasses and it and it just comes down to the craft of cooking what can you do and that's the thing that i love about cooking is at the end of the day we can talk all we want and if i'm interviewing you you can have the best story period but i'll put you in front of six burners and either you can or you can't i would not look pretty you know (laughs) I can't fly a plane. I'll be the first so, person to admit that, like, I'm not the best chef or cook, even line cook. Like, I'm but, not the best server. Like, it, my mind's not hardwired for that. Like, I have so much respect for those roles. Like, but it's incredible. I think that's what that's where I wish younger people's brains were wired a little more. Know what you're getting into. If what you really want in life is to get yourself on the track of going and working at these world's fifty best places, do it. But if what you really want to do is you want to learn and you want to be in a great environment, I'm telling you, you can find those opportunities all over the country. Yes. I've loved this conversation, Chef. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to take one more quick break. We're going to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system to 
you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time and everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files, or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily, so there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. We are back, and the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Dogged persistence. What is your biggest weakness? Dogged persistence. (laughs) What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're going through the interview process, when you're building your team? Uh, Attitude. What is your biggest challenge today? Staffing. How are you overcoming it? Working like a college football coach and trying to be a great recruiter. Mm. Uh, What are you doing to recruit? Uh, Reaching out to as many people as as we can. I mean, actually using, uh, I find the people who work here are our best recruiters. So um, trying to incentivize them to bring more people like them to the restaurant. Beautiful. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team this is a way to be a way to act a core value don't be an asshole (laughs) what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team something that's common within the four walls of your business to go above and beyond but not common throughout the industry uh i think i don't know i'm not sure how common this is but we really are very uh strongly suggest uh, personal engagement uh, you're not just taking an order. You want to actually get to know the people and, and personally engage with them on a human level. We we track people. Um, so if you were coming to dinner, we take notes so that the next time you come, we've got notes on you and we can provide a more personal experience to you. So probably that weird 
CIA interaction. <laughs> Less transactional, more transformative. Sure. What's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Hmm. I think the book Ferdinand. It's a children's book. Oh, what's the the takeaway from that book? Uh, the ability to just sit by yourself and smell the flowers. I love it. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I think individual restaurateurs uh, should have a clearer perspective and promote themselves more. What is one service you've hired or outsourced? And when I say this, I'm thinking people who do things better than you could ever do in-house, so you contract it out instead of trying to do it in-house. Yeah, we used to make our own bacon, and now we buy bacon from Alan Benton. It's probably the best thing we've ever done. It's Alan <laughs> Benton Bacon? Yeah, Benton's, Benton's ben- Country Hams. Got it. Uh, he does, does our bacon now. Uh, what is one technology that you've invested in that has had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Probably an iPhone, honestly. Uh, so much stuff that we do is through there. It's not necessarily like a micro or an Aloha or anything like that, but so much of our lives are done through that at the restaurant. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I don't always, I mean, I talk to a lot of chef owners, but I'm curious, Have has your cooking evolved to leverage technology like i'm sure maybe early in your career you weren't using a sous vide or a combi oven or anything like that like has that technology evolved for you yeah i mean we we kind of followed the sous vide arc we don't use it nearly as much as we did maybe three years ago um and that just goes with changing like we're live fire uh no gas on our grill that just goes i think with changing you know style we can't really afford a combi oven, so we don't have one of those. Yeah. Um, but technology standpoint, I mean, it's pretty pretty old school. I mean, we did have the uh, you know one thing that has actually changed a lot is having the chamber vacuum sealer. Um, it, aside from um, cooking in a water bath, being able to have that for storage compression, uh, those kind so of. So, what exactly? How has that affected your operation? Well, I mean, it's made things way more efficient. Um, we can, you know, being able to, instead of just having the 18-inch roll of plastic wrap everywhere, um, being able to have things properly labeled and in those bags has made my brain feel better about life, but has also made us more efficient from a, a financial standpoint. There's way less waste. Got you. Uh, what is, this is actually the last question. It's a doozy, so get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? <laughs> it's a cheesy question. Uh, no, I mean, I think I'm that, a cheesy uh, dude, man. I lean into it. <laughs> that, that one of them is, is kind of what we try and follow here. So, you know, try and get a little bit better every day. One. Yeah, the second one is uh, what I try and tell the cooks a lot. Just don't be an asshole. To be a good person. Uh, and the third one is 100% be yourself. Don't copy anybody else because you're the only you. It's so much easier to show up to you yeah. 
than something you're saying you are. Well, you're guessing if you're doing something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just be yourself. And I'll be honest, man. It's, it's took me almost a thousand episodes to find my own voice. Yeah. You know, and every episode I do, I feel a little bit more comfortable to be myself. It doesn't happen overnight. I think it takes time to no. discover who you are. You got to play a long time before you can play like yourself. Exactly. Uh, who do you think I should be getting on the show? A special shout out to Nick Bishop Jr. from Hattie Bees for calling you out to be a guest on the show. Who do you respect? and admire and if they were a show a guest on the show tomorrow you would absolutely be listening to that episode uh i would go and talk to josh haviger at bastion um one of my favorite dining experiences in the country the brilliant chef but also going into that restaurant i immediately feel like uh i'm being cared for before the first plate even hits the bar or the table um feel like i'm being cared for it's you know it's just a brilliant restaurant, but also I feel great going in there and I feel better leaving. Mm. And that was Chef Josh Haviger of Bastion in Nashville. Look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. Uh, and Chef Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, sure. your knowledge, your, your mentorship, your perspective. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys all found value. Special thanks to Nick Bishop Jr. for helping us connect with Chef Andy Little. And uh, man, he did not disappoint. Uh, great recommendation there. And uh, thank you, Chef Andy Little, again for sharing your story and your perspective. I really enjoyed our time together. You keep it real, man. Uh, so we have a busy week coming at you here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, we have our book club, which we usually do in the first of every month. But because of how crazy things have been, we pushed it to the third Monday of the month, which is going to be this Monday. So if you're listening to this episode early in the morning and you want to come hang out with us at noon uh, for this book club, we're, we're reading the book Bold, which kind of reflects on the first book from Peter Diamandis and Peter Kotler uh, around this idea that the world is changing exponentially fast. And if you want to be ready for that change, uh, they, they kind of give you the the tools you need, the perspective you need in the book Bold to be building a, 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 a business that makes an impact. So that's the book we're reading this month. Uh, then after the book club on Monday, we have Corey Manaconi from Zool joining us for peer mentoring. Those are just literally sessions when I get guests on the show. I'm connecting you, my listeners, with our guests. So if you enjoyed Corey Manaconi's episode, uh, you can meet him live in the network on Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. On Tuesday, like always, we have coffee with Eric. That's at noon. And that's where we just hang out, support each other, talk about whatever comes up. And uh, it's just a way to... It's lonely at the top, but it doesn't need to be. We're there for you. Uh, And then at 3 o'clock, this might change... But for now, it's at 3 o'clock. We have Lisa Duff from Rocky Coast joining us. And that is a uh, printing and uh, embroidery and promotional goods company. We're going to be going over Swag 101. So a lot of you are maybe thinking about getting T-shirts or whatever type of swag, hats. But you don't really know the best approach or things to consider. We're going to be going over the things restaurateurs don't consider when they're getting their swag. And she's actually going to be coaching me through the process of creating swag for Restaurant Unstoppable. So I'm excited about that. And then at Wednesday at 1 p.m., we have the founder of NCEO, which stands for National Center for Employee Ownership, joining us to talk about the power of employee stock ownership programs. Uh, I know that's a hot topic. Uh, For me, at least, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more employee-owned operations in the future. And uh, the the founder, uh, 
Corey Rosen is going to be joining us to talk about the benefits and the things to consider if you are looking to do some type of employee stock ownership program. And uh, I think once you hear the benefits, you might be interested. So that's it for today. Um, Looking forward to you guys hanging out with us this week. Until next time, peace out.